If you were with us last week, I'm just going to do a really quick backtrack and a rehash um, because it's directly connected to this week. Last week, uh, the theme of what we were looking at was that being all in for Jesus isn't about being willing to die for him someday. It's about choosing to die to ourselves every day. That was the foundation we looked at in Acts chapter 21, where the Apostle Paul was willing, as there was a prophecy that was given to him by Agabus, he came and he took Paul's belt and he wrapped his own hands and said, you are going to be bound by the people in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and the people that Paul knew felt like that was a prophecy for him to be arrested, potentially for his death. And Paul said, I am willing to die for Jesus. I am willing to die. And we asked the question last week, are you all in? Are you all in for Christ? And, and sometimes we, we determine all in or we associate all in as just being, um, sometimes, we, sometimes we associate being all in with having to do something extreme, having to do something supernatural, the greatest of the greatest. I'm going to go sell my life and my world and change everything that I do and go reach you know, people on the other side of the world for Jesus. That's how God's going to know that I'm all in. I'm going to give my life for Jesus. If, if someone comes in and tells me to choose Jesus or choose this world, I'm going to choose Jesus. And that's how everyone's going to know that I'm all in. But, but Paul didn't really demonstrate that he was all in because he was willing to die for Christ. He got to that place because he died to himself every day. He got to a place because he chose every day to not live for himself, but to live for Christ. And, and one of the most beautiful things I think about, last week we were talking about that, was it's difficult for us sometimes to think about that when we put too much value on the world and not enough on Christ. When we think what God's asking us to do is to give up something of value to take something up of nothing, or to give up something of great value to take something of good value, when it's actually exactly the opposite. He calls us to lay down the things of the world, which are only temporal, to take on the things that are eternal. Because knowing Christ is the most valuable thing. That's why Jesus said, when he talked about the kingdom of God in the Gospels, he equated it to a man who found a treasure in a field. Some of you know that parable. And in the parable, he says he went into the field, he saw this treasure, he buried the treasure back in the field, went, sold everything he had, bought the field so that he could have the treasure. And that's what Jesus was trying to show us, that the way that we can experience the most valuable thing in this world is to let go of the thing that is of this world and take on the thing that is not. So that's what we talked about last week, being all in for Jesus. How did we talk about doing that? Really simply, I mentioned two quick things towards the end of the message about taking daily steps and not just focusing on the destination. If you want your spouse to know or your family members to know that you're all in with them, that you've made a full commitment to walk with them and to be with them, don't just think about what's going to happen at your funeral and how they're going to remember you. Think about what you're doing with them tomorrow. Think about what you're doing with them the next day. Think about how a daily decision to be all in is actually going to bring you to the destination of being all in. You with me? Like steps, and that's just not just a spouse, it's just life about anything. If you want to be all in, think about the next step in front of you, not just the place that you want to be. And then the second thing was to walk in response to his love. Because if you try to do this in your own strength, if I try to do this in my own strength, I'm going to fail. Our response to what Jesus has done for us is what equips us and empowers us to be this way. Otherwise, it's just me trying as best as I can and holding on with everything I have to just be as strong and be as confident as I can. But Paul said in Romans 12, you remember last week I used the scripture, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as living sacrifices. He didn't say offer yourself as living sacrifices because that's what the pastors tell you to do. He said in view of God's mercy, in view of the love that God has displayed to you, in view of the compassion that God has displayed to you, let your heart respond to him by offering yourself as a living sacrifice. See the difference in that? 
giving ourselves to Christ is not about us doing it in our own strength. It's about responding to what Jesus has already done for us, which is he gave himself for you and he gave himself for me. So that's my, I could have said that in like 10 minutes last week and I said it in like 40, I just realized. So forgive me. Um, Anyway, I feel like I did a synopsis, but anyway, what does that have to do with today? Well, you're going to see what it looks like because the theme of being all in is definitely connected to what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to look at a practical example of how that played out in the scripture, in the life of Paul. And today's message is entitled Displaying God's Story. Displaying God's Story. Okay? What is your story? Think about this just for a few minutes with me. Just humor me. What is your story? It's over here. When someone asks you, to tell you, tell them your story, what would you tell them? You know, one of the easiest ways of maybe thinking about this would be in the context of, say, an interview. You go on a job interview or you're meeting someone for the first time that you've never known before. And you, they say, tell me about yourself. What do you say? That's like the biggest question. And it's also sometimes like the hardest question because there's so many things you could share. What are some of the things you would share if someone said, tell me about yourself? Basically, what they're asking you is, what is your story? Maybe you'll start by giving examples like, this is my family. This is where I'm from. This is where I was born and raised. This is the employment or the career that I have. Here are my interests, my hobbies, my passions. You may even talk about your faith. All of those things point to understanding the story that God has given you. Here's something I think we need to understand this morning is that each of us have a unique story. Do you know that? Each of us have a very unique story. Your story is your story because God has made you and me unique. Okay? Now, there may be similarities in some of your stories, right? I talked to someone this morning just for a brief moment, and they were sharing where they grew up. And I probably grew up about 15, 20 minutes from where they grew up. And I thought, wow, like there's similarities. But their story is different from mine. Completely unique. Different people, different places, different families. It's unique but we have been uniquely made. Each of us has a uniquely created story by God to use every part of us for his will and for his plan. So when someone asks you, what is your story? There's different ways that we can look at it. Here's the main focus that I think we need to look at regarding the church in motion. Remember the church in motion series is looking at spiritually healthy principles that we can grow in as we walk closer to God so that we can be the church that God has called us to be. So regarding the story, our story and God's story, here's what I said. The church in motion realizes the purpose of their life story is to display God's story. If we want to be spiritually healthy, if we want to grow closer, or if we are growing closer to God and be the church that God calls us to be, the church is not a building, right? The church are the people. So the church in motion realizes that the purpose of their life story, and each individual person has a life story, that our life story is to display God's story. Does that make sense? That's what God has called the church to be about. Without God, if we take God out of the picture, things will look a certain way. We might talk about our roles, our jobs, our families, our interests, our kids, our success, our economic status. We could talk about all these things that tell the story of who we are. But with Christ, all of those same things may still be there, but they're only a part of the bigger story. And that smaller story is intended 
to teach and lead people towards the larger story. It kind of looks like this. I was trying to think of a of an example that would be simple. So um, here we go. So this is a, this is a pillow, right? So right, see this beautiful pillow here. Um, this is my favorite pillow that I've had since I was a little child. No, I'm just kidding. It's not my pillow. It's not my pillow at all. If, if, no, anyway. Um, just track with me for a moment. This is my story. It looks a certain way. It's blue. It represents the world, right? It's blue. It tells people about where I grew up, what I do for a living. It tells them about my family. It tells them about my gifts, my abilities. People know some of my stories simply because they've observed different things in my life. This is my story. This is what the world is supposed to see without Jesus. But with Jesus, see, Jesus takes things that are one way and he flips it upside down. He takes things in the paradox of the church to say, to keep your life, you must lose it, right? The greatest leaders are going to be the greatest servants. He flips everything upside down, and when you add Christ into the mix, though the story is still there, it completely changes its look, right? Look at all you. <laughs> Y'all knew this, right? I mean, I learned this when I was like two years old, right? That this, this is what these do. You're all like, I know what he's going to do. See what I'm talking about? It's all still here, but there's an element to this that we see after Christ, that you don't see before Christ. All we see before Christ is ourself. All we see before Christ are all the things in this life that we think maybe we've earned, we've been raised, we've been taught, we've been trained. But when you add Christ to the situation, he completely flips everything upside down, and then he has something new to show the world, which is the cross. Isn't that cool? Got it? You're with me. Okay, good. We're done with the sequin pillow. Everything changes is the point. Everything changes in the, with, with the point. And what we're going to look at here is we're going to look at Paul sharing his story to elevate the story of God. That he uses who he was. He uses his abilities. He uses his background. He uses his education. Everything that God has given him, he uses not for himself, but to make God's story known to the world around him. It's a beautiful story. And I want to walk through that with you in just a few moments. Now, what we're going to do today, just so you know, is we're going to go through five chapters of Acts in the next three hours. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to do the five chapters of Acts. We're not going to read all five chapters because it actually is one big story and it tells pieces. So I'm going to share and read some of what's happening. Then I'm going to give you a bit of an example of, or some illustration or, or summary as what's happening in between. And then we're going to jump to the next few passages. That's the way it's going to work. So you'll hear a little bit of what I have to say about it. Then you'll see some scripture. We're going to read the scripture that I'll put on the screens for you. And you can follow along. Then I'll fill in some of the holes, and we're going to continue to jump through five chapters because there are key things I want you to see in here, and we just don't have the time to read five chapters on a Sunday morning. But it is all one big piece. So before we go into 22, we have to back up. We're going to read verses 27 through 40 so we understand the context of where we are. Remember last week, Paul was in Caesarea. Agabus prophesied that he would be bound by the leaders in Jerusalem. That's what we talked about last week. That's what the whole summary was that I just talked about. Now they're in Jerusalem, and it all starts to come true. 
beginning in verse 27, says, when the seven days were nearly over, that was a, a ritual, a cleansing ritual, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. Isn't that amazing? The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Get an idea of what's happening in this situation? We just talked about last week how the prophecy was written that he's going to go into Jerusalem and there is going to be a whole lot of trouble for Paul. And Paul was fine with not only being bound, but going to his death if it would be God's will and God's plan to do that. He was willing. He was fully on board. He was all in. Not because of his willingness to die for Jesus someday, but because he died to himself each and every day. Here in this passage, we see this starting to unfold. What he did in the, in the temple, what he did bringing non-Jews there, what he did if you're foundationally going to say the issue that people had with Paul, he was trying to talk to people about Christ and, and they were claiming that he was saying you should stop following the Hebraic law. But that's not what he was teaching. He was simply saying Jesus came for all and the law itself does not save you. It's faith in Christ that saves you. So non-Jewish people don't need to practice the Jewish law to still receive Christ. You with me? There's a difference. But to the Hebrews, that was heresy. That was saying that you're telling me that these dirty, non-Jewish people can get to know who Jesus is simply because of this, this faith in this resurrected person that we don't even believe in because of the, the Sanhedrin, which was a combination of some of the Jewish leaders. You had Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection. So you're talking about this resurrected person that we don't even believe in and you're telling us that they don't even have to follow the Hebraic laws that we have fought, fought or followed, I'm sorry, for thousands of years. That would get you pretty upset. In the Old Testament, you'd be killed. But Paul does something here, and I paused here in verse 2 of chapter 22 because I think it's important for us to understand what it means about displaying God's story in the way that he lived. He spoke to them, and he didn't speak to them in Greek. He didn't speak to them in Hebrew. He was talking to Jews and he spoke to them in Aramaic. Why is that significant? Well, because many of the Jews that lived outside of Palestine would not have been able to speak Hebrew or Greek. They wouldn't have understood that language. Speaking Aramaic gave Paul credibility to his words. How did he learn Aramaic? 
Well, if you know anything about Paul's background and you know his history, you know that this was one smart dude. And he spent many, many years not just teaching, I mean, sorry, learning under amazing leaders like Gamaliel, but he was, by all accounts, one of the, I mean, he called himself in terms of legalistic righteousness, faultless, and that he was smarter, basically, in Philippians 3. He's like, you know all the people that I was, like, in the class with? I was smarter than all of them. Like, he didn't say it that way, but that's pretty much what he was saying. Go and read Philippians 3, and you'll see what he said. Nobody was as gifted as I was. He took all of his history, and in this one moment, he took something that he learned over the course of his years, and he used it to get a hold of the people that were trying to kill him. Isn't that powerful? If Paul did not speak Aramaic, he couldn't have done it. He couldn't have quieted them this way. And yet he used a part of his own story to get a hold of their hearts. So what happens in here, and we're not going to read all of this, is that Paul uses this moment of silence to share his conversion story. And if you don't remember this story, you can go back to Acts chapter 9. He talks all about it in Acts 9. Very, very powerful. He actually adds some more into this portion. But the crowds were so upset with Paul after he shared that they wanted him to be punished. The Roman commander ordered him to be flogged, ordered him to be beaten. Now, this isn't just, we're going to go and spank you with a wooden spoon kind of beating. This was the kind of flogging that they would have flogged Jesus before he was crucified, where they would take a whip that was meshed with bone and metal, and they would whip you and whip you in the back to tear the flesh away from your back. And they would do that, and if you did survive, it could take you months, if not years, to recover from this type of whipping. But before Paul was beaten, he mentioned to the Romans that he was a citizen of Rome. The commander was alarmed that Paul was a Roman citizen, and before they even beat him, they had him in chains. Because if you know anything about the law of Rome, Roman citizens were not allowed to be chained or beaten without a trial. So they took him, a Roman citizen, without knowing anything about his heritage and his background, and they bound him, they chained him, and they were going to beat him. And it's almost like they're ready to do this. And Paul looks at him, and we won't read this, like I said, from the scripture, but he looks at the the commander and the soldier and says, I I didn't realize it was okay for you to do this to a Roman citizen. And the guy takes a step back. And the challenge that you see here is his response is, "How, how are you a Roman citizen? I paid a huge price for my citizenship. How can you be a citizen? And Paul's response, I love it. I was born a citizen of Rome. And that threw everybody into a downward spiral. The commander wanted to know why he was being accused by the Jews in that moment. Because he can't beat a Roman citizen. So God used Paul's story of his heritage to keep him from being beaten. So what does he do? He releases Paul. Scripture says the next day, they all assembled the Hebrew leaders to discuss this and to get more information. If we fast forward to Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 10, let me talk about this. Paul is struck by the high priest. His words provoke dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees come to him with support. The dispute was so violent, the Scripture says, that Paul was going to be torn into pieces. So they sent him to the barracks for his safety. I'm going to read this, verses 9 and 10. There was a great uproar, the scripture says, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Stop for a second. Why did the Pharisees agree with Paul? Because they were talking about the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, so for a short period of time, they were kind of on Paul's side. 
wait a minute, what if this guy is talking from God? Let's listen to him. Verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. That's where the soldiers were. He said, if we don't keep this guy under, a, not really house arrest, but protective custody, he's going to die. And then something happens in verse 11, which I think is a pivotal moment, and it's directly related to what we're talking about today regarding displaying God's story. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of fear, in the midst of danger, possible certain death if things go wrong, Jesus comes alongside. I I don't even know what it really means to say that the Lord stood near Paul. Was it a physical embodiment? Was it the Lord speaking to him? It's irrelevant. But clearly, he had a conversation with Jesus. And the message was, you've testified about me here in Jerusalem. And the same way that you've done this here, you're going to have to testify in Rome. What did that message tell Paul in that moment? A couple of things. One, trust me, you're not going to die in Jerusalem. Two, you're going to Rome. Right? That's what he's telling him in this. Your story is going to result in you going to Rome. Why? Why was he going to Rome? To testify. It didn't mean he was going to testify against what the people were saying. To give testimony about who Jesus was and to share the goodness of God. So here's what happens in chapter 23. Now we're in verse 12 through 35. I'm just going to summarize it. A plot is hatched to kill Paul. Okay, a plot is hatched to kill Paul and an oath is made during the day the plot is hatched that no one will eat or eat or drink until he is dead. That's pretty committed, right? We're not eating or drinking until he's dead. Paul's nephew hears this. He goes and tells Paul, Paul's nephew is then asked to go report it to the Roman commander. This is what happened. The commander then orders 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to accompany Paul to Governor Felix in Caesarea. He's like, I got to get this guy out of here. So he takes hundreds, almost 500 Roman soldiers between the spearmen, the horsemen, and the soldiers. And he accompanies him with a letter to Felix, the governor, so Paul will get out of town. And the problem is no longer Felix is, is no longer the commander, but it's now Felix's problem. Felix puts Paul in Herod's palace and he awaits for the arrival of his accusers. Now we're in Acts chapter 24. Okay, you guys still with me? Okay? Okay, I hope so. Okay. Acts chapter 24, because we're getting to another point here. Five days later, this is another summary, the high priest Ananias went to Caesarea with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. Chapter 24 through 27, in Paul's defense, Felix meets with him many times in private as someone who was acquainted with the followers of the way. Scripture says that Paul talked a long time each visit, but never offered Felix a bribe. Felix always wanted Paul to like give him money, but he let him talk about this Jesus situation. Felix kept Paul in prison for two years. And then Felix was succeeded by a guy named Festus. But before leaving office, Felix left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. Don't you love government? And that's all I'm going to say today about that. Now we're in Acts 25. Listen to what happens here. Festus, this is the new leader. He goes to Jerusalem. 
to hear about the charges against Paul. He's brand new in his job. He's trying to figure out who this guy is that's been in prison for two years. Why is this happening? He goes back to Jerusalem to hear the charges against Paul. He denies the request to bring Paul to Jerusalem. All the Jews wanted him to do was bring Paul back to Jerusalem. Do you know why? They wanted to kill him. They were still angry at him two years later. Festus goes back to Caesarea, where Paul is. Jews from Jerusalem follow him, and Festus asks Paul if he will go to Jerusalem on trial. The governor asks Paul, will you go back with me to Jerusalem to do this trial in Jerusalem? Here's Paul's response in Acts 25, verse 10. Look what he says. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. And guess where Caesar lived? Rome. Isn't this cool? Like, see how this works. This is two years after he's been in prison. Jesus gave him this this insurance, this assurance that he would have to go to Rome. Paul didn't just idly wait and sit back and say, God, you do whatever you're going to do. No, he looked back and he saw his heritage, his story, his experience. And as he saw things unfold, he knew in his heart there was a vision, there was a direction, there was a purpose behind what he was doing. And he used it to fulfill God's plan. Why is this so significant that he could appeal to Caesar and he would go? Well, because that's what Romans could do. Roman citizens had the right to appeal to Caesar on any issue that they had an issue. That didn't mean that Caesar himself would oversee the proceedings. They would have a fair trial in the heart of Rome. But if you appealed to Caesar, you may not be seen by the emperor, but you would go directly to the heart of Rome, and that's where your trial would happen. That's what every Roman citizen had the ability to do. So, verses 13 to 27, just a quick summary. Festus, he's that governor, he asks a new guy, his name is King Agrippa, for assistance to determine what charges to write up about Paul because you can't really send a prisoner to Rome without real charges. This guy's brand new to his role. And he says if there aren't any valid charges, he isn't comfortable sending Paul to Caesar. So, Verse, or sorry, chapter 26, and it's a great chapter if you want to go back and read it at some point. This new guy, Agrippa, he then meets with Paul. And for 26 verses, Paul has an opportunity to share his entire testimony to King Agrippa. And the same thing that you read a chapter and a half before, you get to read again. He shares his story. He's a witness to this king. No charges are found against him. King Agrippa's statement about Paul is powerful in verse 30. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice... And those sitting with them, after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Think about that. We could have let him go if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But now we have to send him to Rome, which is exactly where Jesus told him he needed to what? Go. This is cool. Like, like, this is really cool stuff. Maybe I'm like, you know, super nerding out. But like, this is really exciting because I look at this and I go, he died to himself every day. That's how he was all in. He said, whatever the will of God is, 
is what I'm going to do. I'm going to use my experience, my language, my family background, my training, my passions, my hobbies, my influence, everything that I have been given, I'm going to submit it to God because my story's purpose is to display God's story to the world. So that's what he did. And he let God use everything that he had. He let God use everything that he had. He had common ground with an audience because of his language. So he gave a testimony. Do we use our own privileges and our own abilities and our own backgrounds and our own everything to access opportunities for the gospel in our lives, around us, and in the world that we're in. When I even think about the privileges that he had, he used his civic privileges. He was a Roman citizen. He was a Roman citizen, and he used his own citizenship to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. He appealed to Caesar, and that's how everything resulted with him going to Rome. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I'm kind of with you, but I'm maybe a little bit lost, and if you are, I apologize, but maybe this will help a little bit. So, I like things. I like object lessons and stuff like that, because I think in pictures. I don't know if anybody knows what I'm talking about. Like, I like, I think in pictures. So, I mow the lawn, I wash cars, I fix cars, I do things around my house, I go through community, like things pop up in images. And So, yeah, I have an image for you, okay? Um, this is a toolbox, okay? Um, so, uh, so that we don't have to pay royalties to the people that actually may have had the loss. <laughs> Just kidding, actually. Um, this is the toolbox. Um, this is full of, guess what? Good. Um, these are mechanics tools, okay? Um, at least for me. Um, I have these, these rags on top of here because the box is so old, when you close it, if you don't have the rags on top of it and you pick it up, everything dumps. So this is like my little, like, pad so it doesn't fall apart. Not that you care to know that, but anyway. I got this toolbox when I was 15 years old. I'm going to move over a little bit more into the light so you can see my beautiful head. Um, I got this toolbox when I was 15 years old. I wanted a moped. Do you guys remember what a moped was? Some of you? I mean, we heard Kevin talk about lunchboxes a little while ago, so some of you know what we're talking about. I wanted a moped when I was 15. When you're 15 in North Jersey, you were allowed to actually drive a moped. And there's no way in the world my parents were going to let me have a moped, but I was persistent. I asked enough. And there was always the back of my mind, this little hope when I was 15, that on my birthday, which happened to be in the middle of winter, because it's the end of December, that I would be able to have permission to go buy a moped. I would even have the money to do it. But instead of having a moped, there's this box that came from the bedroom that came into the kitchen, and it was about this big or so. And it was a set of tools. Quickly figured out it wasn't a moped because you can't fit a moped in a box that size. Um, I'm not going to lie and say I was excited. I was really disappointed. Though I kind of knew they weren't going to do it. Like there's no way they were going to do it. But you know how like you just hope something's going to happen and you kind of know it's never going to happen but you always have this tiny little hope in in the back of your mind saying please let it happen. And of course it doesn't. I remember taking the box downstairs, and I would, don't get me wrong, like, I was thankful. I was a kid that always took stuff apart when I was a, a, a kid. I would take things apart, and I wasn't really good at putting it back together, but that's what dads were for. So they would put this stuff back together, and 
I would monkey with stuff and mess with his tools and do all that. So it was my own first tool set. And almost every tool in here um, in the main area are the original tools, like a lot of the ones that are in here. Now, some of them have broken, and I've gotten them replaced for different reasons. But I remember taking this down in the basement or our downstairs floor, wiping them and polishing them all up and putting it in the toolbox that I had at that point. That was before this. This was like maybe five or six years later I got so I could keep them organized. And I remember thinking, okay, I have a toolbox. I have a bunch of tools. What am I going to do with these? What is it going to look like? When am I going to start looking at this? And how, I mean, how am I going to use these tools? That was 35 years ago, almost 35 years ago. I did some math, and I recognized over the last 35 years that there have been almost 20 vehicles that I have either purchased or worked on just connected in our family that these tools have been a part of. That doesn't include friends. Doesn't include some of you. <laughs> doesn't include friends. Doesn't include neighbors. It doesn't include all of the things that weren't directly to or connected with me. There are different types of tools in here, I've noticed, you know, for different jobs. There's this little quarter-inch socket. There's a three-eighths-inch socket in here. There's a half-inch socket. I'm saying socket ratchets. I'm not even calling it the right thing. These are ratchets that are in here. Then I have um, short sockets, and I have deep sockets, and, and they're all these different tools, and they're used for different things. I have noticed, though, over the last 34 years that I have used these tools in so many different capacities for so many different purposes for myself, for my kids, for my family. There has been mud on these tools. There has been grease on these tools. There has been blood on these tools from doing things that I probably shouldn't have done. Okay? But it has impacted many people over the course of my life. Now, my tools have grown significantly over the years. Um, I have quite a few more than these, as my wife would testify to. Um, but this is like the go-to tool set that I've still used since I was a little kid. Here's why I'm sharing this and why I think it matters. This is part of my story. Right? Well, you have, if anybody walked into my garage, they'd look and they go, this guy fixes stuff because it's part of my story. But with Jesus, this isn't just something I use to fix things. It's something I use to bless people. It's something that I use to help others. It's something that I use to build relationship with other people that are learning to do things that now I know how to do. See where I'm going with this? It's a tool, many tools, that I use not just for me, and my abilities or the needs that I have, but to find ways to connect with other people to either help them when they need the help or to bring others alongside and walk life with them to teach them something that they haven't learned on their own. What's the difference? The difference is what the purpose of my life is. The difference is, am I the king of my story or is Jesus the king of my story? The difference is, am I displaying God's story through my story, or am I the hero of the story? And for all of us who are in Christ Jesus, God has given tools. For all of us who are living and breathing in this world, God has given tools. Now, now these tools may be productive tools that you can say, well, okay, Paul, those are, those are tools and they're productive. But, you know, God has given us other tools as well. For example... Your toolbox may look different. In fact, it probably does. But you may be asking different questions. 
Maybe one of the questions that you're looking at or you're asking in the same way is, you know, I pull out this one tool, which is like this little stubby handled screwdriver thing that puts little sockets on there. And I've looked at this for so many years. I'm like, what am I going to do with this thing? Like, what application do I possibly need until the right situation comes of putting a little quarter-inch socket on the end actually is the perfect tool and the perfect solution for Maybe you have those situations in your life. Maybe you've asked yourself, what am I going to be doing with this degree? I'm going to college and I'm doing this thing and I'm listening to these classes and I just don't even understand the significance of why I'm doing this. What am I doing with this degree? God is putting a tool in your toolbox. He is going to use it at some point. Trust him as you're walking. Why am I in the job that I'm in, Paul? God, why am I still in the job that I'm in? I don't like it, or I'm frustrated here, or I'm not sure what to do with this skill set. Can I tell you? Again, I said this years ago. It's okay to ask God questions. It's not okay to question God. There's a difference. But why are you in the job? You may not know why you're in your job right now, but God does. He's putting tools in your toolbox. When our churches came together many years ago, Christian Life and Maranatha, we came together. That was me coming out of almost 15 years of corporate experience. And so many times I walked through that process, talking with friends and pastor friends especially, that said, I could never do what you guys are doing right now. God's using your corporate experience to make this happen in the church world. And can I tell you, there were years of tears being in the environment before I was in ministry. My wife would testify. Years of why am I still doing what I'm doing? Why am I involved in this? Why am I successful in it, but I don't want to be a part of it? God uses those things as we submit them to him to accomplish his purposes, not our own. Maybe you wonder why you're in your job. Why did I experience abuse? That's a big one. Hard things came into my life. I've been a victim of abuse. I've suffered abuse at different hands. Why did I experience those things? And let's just be real clear about it. I don't believe ever, 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 ever that God looks at one of us and says, pain goes to you. You're going to be my chosen abused person. I don't think he does that. I think we live in a broken, messed up world, and we're going to continue to live in a broken, messed up world until Jesus fixes everything when he comes back the second time. However, however, We can look at that tool sometimes, and it might be the ugliest tool in our toolbox. Like, like this is probably my ugliest one because I don't clean it. It's a spark plug tool. And it's dirty, and it's gross, and it's filled with all kind of junk on it. You might hate that tool and go, how is that even a tool? Let me tell you how it's a tool. When you submit that experience to the Lord and he heals you through it, he is going to use you to heal other people. He's going to use you to change the lives of other people. And now all of a sudden, the experience that you went through, which was part of your story, right? Abuse may be part of your story, is purposed to display God's story. It's super powerful when we do this. Why did I experience betrayal, husband, wives, situations? When you go through divorce, you go through betrayal, you go through infidelity. God doesn't want you just watch you cry and go through grief. He wants you to be healed from those things and then he will use that tool that he's planted in you to reach others. What about a disability or a limitation? We sang Blessed Assurance this morning. The story of Fanny Crosby who was blind from the time she was a young child. We can look at disabilities as a part of our story and say, well, because of this, we're in a, we have... We're not effective in this way, this way, or this way. Or we could use those disabilities and we could recognize that though we may not be able to see in the physical realm, we can clearly see a risen Savior. 
What has God given me or why has he given me the ability to have great influence in people's lives or to, to, to earn significant amounts of wealth? And you know what the world tells us about those things? You be you. You do you. You enjoy everything you have, you know, and churches even go down the road of saying like, God says tithe and, you know, then just do whatever you want with the rest of it. I go, that's not even biblical. That's not biblical because everything belongs to God. Every gift, ability, skill he's given us, we surrender to him. And he says, you do what I ask you to do with what I give you. That's why this building exists. This building doesn't exist because people tithe to the church over the last 50 years, whenever this building has, or the last 35 years as this church has been here. This building exists because people sacrificed above and beyond. This place becomes a house of worship because people heard the voice of God and they responded. Nonprofit organizations exist because of those things. Two weeks ago, our pastors, we went to um, uh, a conference. It's called the, the Ministry Summit. Once a year, it was held this year in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. And Pastor Rob and I went to a convoy of Hope Lunch. And in the convoy of Hope Lunch, they were telling us about the new facility that they were moving into, right? Pastor Rob, four times the size, they said that they were. Their warehouse facility was becoming four times the size of what they had before. New headquarters, new warehouse facility, huge amount of space. They were even building a facility on site for science so they could, they could um, use science to figure out agricultural benefits on what type of seeds are better to plant in different areas of the world as they go out and they release this for women's empowerment and for farmers all around the world. $56 million was the price tag for them to do that. And you know what they told us? They said, we have raised 51 million of the 56 million so far. And you know how we've raised it? By people of affluence and influence, I'm sorry, influence and wealth giving above and beyond none of the money you ever give to the church through the church for one day to feed the world or anything ever goes to finance that. He said their admin fees are eight and a half percent every year for everything that they get. And it's the people that have been gifted these tools that are funding the larger ministry. Isn't that incredible? $51 million. He said that the, the company, the, the, uh, the town or the, the city, I'm sorry, of Springfield had a listing of all the major projects that were going on in the city. And they would list the project, the name, and who financed every one of the projects. And Convoy of Hopes was on there and it said no mortgage. How cool is that? Because people of God recognize the tool that God gave them to use it to display God's story and not their own. This isn't a formula, friends. It's just another example. The last one that I would mention is what Paul used, and that was his citizenship, citizenship of Rome. And that's something that I'd want to pause for a few minutes and just think about this morning. Because if you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you're in this country, the United States of America. And there's a really good chance you're a citizen of this country. And if you're not, that's okay too. But we live in a country right now that still practices freedom of faith and religion. We live in a country right now where the doors are still wide open for us to be the church of Jesus Christ without fear of legitimate persecution, without fear of legitimate violence against us. And we can't say that about brothers and sisters that live all around the world. Am I right? doesn't look like that everywhere else. Can I tell you, with the freedoms that God has given us, there is a huge expectation in the kingdom of God for the church in America to be a free church in America. What is God giving us with these tools and how are we using them to not tell our story, but to display his story? We're going to close in a few minutes and if the worship team could come as we get ready to close.
you might be listening to this this morning and you might say, yeah, I, I hear that. How do I do it? How do I do it? Because I'm an I'm a application, how do I do it kind of a person. How do I do it? And I want to give you one thing to think about this morning on how you can make this happen. How are you or how can you stay focused on recognizing and realizing that your story in Christ is designed to display God's story to the world? Stay connected to Jesus. Stay connected to Jesus. This is the answer. This is the solution. Staying connected to Jesus is another way of saying and summarizing John 15, 5. In John 15, 5, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much what? Fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. The answer to all of this church is not how strong we are, how gifted we are. The answer is simply the daily choice to stay connected to Jesus. The answer is our daily choice to say, I want my story to display Christ's story. I don't want me, Paul, or you to miss this. Jesus has called each one of us to stay connected to him. And when we make it our life's mission, please hear me. When you make it, when I make it the life mission to know Jesus, making him known will be a natural overflow of the relationship that we have with him. So you're not trying harder. You're just living who God has created you to be. I'm not working harder. It's just overflowing because I'm staying connected to Jesus. I'm staying plugged into the power source. Then he looks at all of the tools that we have. He looks at all the tragedies that we have. And he redeems the tragedies and he uses them for his kingdom. And he uses the tools and he uses them for his kingdom. And he uses our passions and our abilities. That's what scripture means in Psalms when it says, Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you what? The desires of your heart. Because there's a part of us that's made in the image of God. And delighting ourselves in the Lord means that we take second spot to Jesus himself. Knowing him becomes the most important thing. And as we put our time into growing him, just like Kathy talked about. Well, you know, I'm not much of a prayer. I don't know how to pray like this person. No, this is about a conversation, guys. This is about a conversation. I don't care if, if you can speak eloquent English or eloquent Spanish or eloquent Hebrew or you can only babble little words. Jesus loves it when we talk with him. It's a beautiful thing. And he's not interested in only the qualified people coming to him. And that's what I love about this example. Like I was 15 years old when I got this and I didn't know jack squat about fixing anything. And I'm being honest. I remember when we moved into our first house in 1996 and I was going to do anything that I could. And I was going to tear apart electrical. And I remember asking the electrician a question while he was doing something. And he stopped with a, with a lamp on his head and his tools in his hand. And he looked back at me and he thought, this kid's going to burn his house down. Because I asked him a question and he was like, well, I, all I could think of was if he was a man of faith, that was praying for me in that moment. He plants things in your heart. Sometimes you don't even realize they're there until it comes time for them to be developed, time for them to grow, time to be healed. And when all of those things are submitted to Christ, we recognize we still have a story, but the mission of the story is to display the story of God. 
So be connected to Jesus. Stay connected with him and watch how everything that's in your life, everything that was good, everything that was hurtful, everything that was that you would celebrate and even the things that you would grieve, he can put all those things together for his purpose, not for our own. And there can be healing, redemption, and restoration, not just for you, but for everyone around you. The team's going to sing this song. It's called, God, You're So Good. And at the end of the song, there's a bridge. And this is what it says. And I just want to just summarize this before they sing it. When we're going to sing this, we sing, I am blessed. I am called. I am healed. I am whole. I am saved. In whose name? Jesus' name highly favored. Do you know that you're highly favored this morning in Christ's name? Anointed, meaning he's called you for a purpose, filled with your power. What's the purpose? For the glory of Jesus' name, which is a fancier way of saying, displaying the story of God. God calls us. He heals us. He saves us. He favors us. He anoints us. Why? For his glory and for the world to see him through us. Would you stand with us, please? Father, I just pray today, as our hearts and our minds are laid before you, that we would recognize your goodness, that you've called us, as we saw in the Apostle Paul, you would call us this morning to walk each day surrender to you. By knowing you more, you will use every difficult thing, every hurt, every help, every tool for the sake of Jesus Christ for that your story can go forth to the nations. You are good, Lord. We pray this all in your name. Amen.